this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. begin in verse 42, and we're going to have just a quick recap of where we've been that's going to set us up for where we're going. And so beginning in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, uh, we read that uh, this was a kind of a picture of the early church. It says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved." Friends, we are an Assemblies of God church. Uh, you know, our name is Open Door Church. We're no longer Pagosa First Assembly. That doesn't mean we're not an Assembly of God church anymore. Uh, we, we are that through and through. We believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we believe in speaking in tongues. We, we practice that. But can I tell you, the reality is that there are plenty of churches that claim to be spirit-filled, that speak in tongues all that they want, but they don't manifest the characteristics that we read about here in 42 through 47. And I, I, I want to be very clear, um, I, I'm all for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm all for walking in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But we can't treat that as the only evidence of a church that is baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so when I'm reading this and I'm looking at what marked the early church, what I, when I look at what marked a church that was baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit, I see plenty here and, and tongues isn't on the list here, right here, if that makes sense. And so please don't get me as the guy that is like, I'm anti-speaking in tongues or something like that. I'm 100% for that, but there's more. That's not the, that's not the, that's not the pinnacle. That's not, the, that's not kind of the arrival point. That's simply an entry gate into the much more that God has for us. And I'm very much concerned that we, if we're going to claim to be a church that is full of the Holy Spirit, that we're going to see these things that described and were markers and characteristics of the early church active and evident in this church, in Open Door Church. Do you catch my drift? Do you you catch my heart behind that? And so I'm looking at this, I'm reading this, I'm looking at what really marked this mighty move of God in the book of Acts and saying, God, I want that for our congregation. I want that for Pagosa Springs. I want to see people being saved. So what did that church look like? And we understand, we talked a number of weeks ago, they weren't perfect. They had issues. If you continue reading through the book of Acts, it was a continual thing. Church would look exactly like this, uh, they, they would have continued doing the exact same thing if there wasn't some need for, for some reform here and there. But the reality of it is there were characteristics that the early church practiced. 
that they walked in that are pivotal for you and I to make sure are part of our lives and a part of this church today. We first looked at the fact that they had a firm foundation. Acts 2.42, we looked at four things that really made up the foundation of the early church, the apostles' doctrine, right? We, we talk about biblical teaching, friends. It's important that any, for a church to really be the church, it's got to be built upon sound doctrine. And that's going to be found in the word of God. That's of utmost importance. That was something that they continued steadfastly and they devoted themselves to was sound biblical teaching. We see next that they devoted not only to that, but also to fellowship. We looked at that Greek word koinonia, and it was more than just kind of getting together for a potluck, though we love those, right? I almost this morning preached the theology of a potluck because <laughs> I was like, oh, it would go really well together. We could talk about the, the need for fellowship here, but that fellowship went beyond just kind of seeing each other at church on a Sunday morning. It was an investment in one another's lives. It was actually a care, compassion that we see manifested in a way that they were willing to sell everything that they had to make sure that their brothers and sisters who were in need were okay. There was a deep investment that cost them something in terms of fellowship. We go on and we see that they were breaking bread together. This is in reference to the Lord's Supper. They were proclaiming and remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made to put them where they were. And this was the first century church. This was right after Jesus had been crucified. This wasn't like years and years and years later. This was right then. These, a lot of these people were there and saw it happen. And they're remembering the price that Jesus paid when they gathered together in the breaking of bread in communion. And last, we see as part of that kind of uh, those four, four points of a foundation, we see that they gave themselves to prayer. And uh, that's no secret that we're, we love prayer here at Open Door Church. It's not just an option kind of that we, that we have on the checklist of what makes the church the church. Um, it's foundational, friends, to the church being the church is the place of prayer. We cannot expect God to do things on our behalf without the place of prayer. It was something that was intentional. It was something that the early church gave themselves to. In fact, all the time that we see these miracles happening throughout the book of Acts, right? It was more often than not, they were on, a pla they were on their way to a place of prayer, right? Uh, just Acts chapter 3 they were going to the temple at the time of prayer to pray. And they see the, the, the lame beggar that uh, you, see, you see healed. Um, we look at Paul and Silas, right? They were on their way to the place of prayer when the little fortune teller girl gets healed, right? And demons get cast out. There, there is something about the place of prayer that is so important if we're going to be a church that is healthy. And so... Those were, I realize this is a recap, guys, but I, I want to preach it again because I love it so much. <laughs> but as we continue on in this text, right, verse 43 through 46 is where we've been for the last number of weeks. I was highlighting five characteristics of a spirit-baptized church that were fruit of the foundation, if that makes sense. Because they had that firm foundation of being rooted in the Bible, of committing to one another in fellowship, of continuing in prayer, of remembering the price that Jesus paid, we see fruit manifest in these spirit 
baptized characteristics in the fear of the Lord. That was something that they walked in. They walked in signs and wonders. They saw miraculous things happened. This was fruit of that foundation. They had a supernatural unity that bridged just cultural racial divides, right? There was a deep sense of brotherhood that existed within the church. And that, that led way to radical generosity where people were literally selling everything that they had, bringing it to the apostles' feet, and they were distributing it as they had need. Now, this isn't some kind of call to Christian socialism or something like this. This was a genuine response of deep concern of what God had done in their hearts that they wanted to see, uh, they wanted to see, uh, their brother, and they wanted to see the church taken care of. It was awesome, and it led to a place where Adam so beautifully talked about last week of them breaking bread together, of eating together, of sharing in life together, where they had gladness and simplicity or sincerity of heart. There was a deep satisfaction in God and God alone. And I would highly encourage you because Adam took that uh, in, a, in a phenomenal direction, and that message is in our podcast last week. But all of these things bring us to the conclusion of Acts chapter 2. Guys, I can, I can with, with like 50% maybe, say that we will be out of Acts chapter 2 next week, <laughs> because this is the last verse. Um, but we see here in verse 47, it says... In verse 47, that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church those daily, those who were being saved. Added to the church daily, those who were being saved. Friends, this is my desire. And I've shared this kind of from the onset. Uh, this whole kind of teaching stemmed from I was trying to cast vision for the year, right? Beginning of the year, it's a good time to cast vision. I was just seeking the Lord and asking God what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it so I could tie up a nice pretty message to deliver to you guys on a Sunday morning where you could say, "Woo, yeah, that's vision for 2022. Let's get behind that, right? <laughs> and really my heart couldn't move past this one verse that God was adding to the church, those who were being saved. You know, I talk about church growth strategy. I talk about these things in kind of a jest and, a, and a, maybe, maybe even a, a little bit of too lighthearted. Um, but the reality of it is, is I want to see this church grow. I want to see the impact of Open Door Church reach far beyond what we could currently imagine or think possible. I want to see the kingdom of darkness pushed back because of what God's doing here. And I want this church to be a safe place for God to trust adding souls. And so all of this is kind of where this culmination came from. This is our desire that many might be saved through the working of this church. And I believe that a church that's living in revival, the definition of revival is going to be one where the lost are being saved. Right? Isn't that Jesus' mission? Didn't we read that in Luke chapter 19? That's what he said about the reason why he came. He said, I came to seek and save the lost. I want that to be true about our church. I want that to be true about what we're doing in this community because the reality is there are plenty of people in our sphere of influence 
There are people that you go to work with. There are people that you go to school with. There are people that we encounter on a daily basis that do not know Jesus and do not have the hope of his salvation. And we have the opportunity, we have the possibility to make a difference there. And so this message was initially much longer than what I'm going to share this morning because I was going to kind of go over multiple different points. But I'm going to begin with this. It's going to serve as an introduction for the next three weeks on really talking about what it means to be saved. So if I were to ask you this question, are you saved? I'm hoping most, if not all of you, would say, yes, I'm saved. But when I was asked that question as a younger kid, um, you know, I didn't grow up in church, and I don't know everybody's background or story here, but if you didn't grow up around this language, if this wasn't kind of ingrained in you from a young age, it can be kind of confusing, right? Uh, If somebody came up to you and just asked, are you saved? What? (laughs) Uh, Are you lost? No, I'm, I'm here. I know where I'm at. Uh, These questions, these terminology, I think sometimes we can uh, get confused, or not get confused, I think sometimes our terminology can be confusing to somebody that's not familiar with our vernacular, if that makes sense. And so when I asked, uh, when, when just kind of the response to the Christianese in me, am I saved? Am I saved from what? (laughs) And if I were to ask you this question today, what are you saved from? I can guarantee that we'd probably get a a variety of different reactions from this congregation. In fact, this last week, I've been asking a number of people just exactly how they would... uh, First, I I asked Adam this this morning, and he gave me like the textbook theological perfect answer, so I can't like rat him out and use it as correction this morning. But uh, if if I were to ask you, what are you saved from... I want you to just think. You don't have to splurt it out. You don't need to, like, text it to me or something. How would you define that? How would you respond? A lot, and I think most people's kind of first conclusion, especially just given media and given the culture, well, obviously, I'm saved from hell, right? I'm not. I I treat salvation with Jesus as my get-out-of-hell-free card, and I get to spend eternity with Jesus. Maybe you would say, man, I'm saved from sin. I'm saved from the devil. I'm saved from myself. The reality is all of these are true in part. But I think that there is actually, I think if we were to leave it there, that it would be an incomplete viewpoint of all that Jesus has saved us from. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at exactly what it is that Jesus has saved us from, how we are saved, and for what we are saved for. And so the way that I kind of phrase these questions are saved from what? Saved by what? And saved for what? And there's all kinds of different kind of bullet points that we can kind of walk through because, yes, I believe that we are saved from the devil. Yes, I believe we're saved from from hell, and we're saved from a life of sin. They all encompass that, but we're going to talk a little bit about each. Uh, We're saved by what? By grace, we're saved, right? We know these things, but I want to dig a little bit deeper, and I want to very, very intentionally talk about the purpose of our salvation, 
Because our salvation is more than just us not going to hell. Our salvation is more than us not just living a life of sin. There is a purpose and a reason why God looked upon you and said, I want you enough to send his son to die. We're going to look at the, the scriptural basis for each and every one of these. But to be honest, I don't think those questions are necessarily fair. And I think there's a better question that we could be asking right now that maybe usurps those other ones. Uh, or maybe not usurps, but it's, it's of importance and it's of utmost importance because I think all those other answers fall under this one. You see, I think it might be easier for us to ask the question rather than being saved from what and saved by what and saving for what, it would be better to ask saved from whom, saved by whom and saved for whom, talking about a person. And I think it, it, just based on the conversations and the people I've asked, um, if I were to tell you, um, if I were to ask you this question, saved from what, most of the people probably their first gut reaction is not going to be that I was saved from God, right? <laughs> In fact, I think this was kind of a bit of controversy, uh, you know, a number of years ago. I know that Rob Bell wrote a book, and he had like this stinger video that came out and says, what kind of God would you want to serve that you had to be saved from him? Essentially was the gist of the basis of that question that he, he wrote his book, um, that caused a lot of controversy. And as I think about that, and I look at Scripture and read what God and what Jesus says, I think it's dangerous if we don't approach it from the lens of, of what exactly the Bible teaches and what exactly Jesus says. You see, I think Scripture is abundantly clear that we're saved by God, <laughs> right? We understand that. You didn't do it. <laughs> Jesus saved you. We're saved for God. We're saved for his pleasure. He delights in us. He wants us. There was a reason why he came, but we're also saved from God. We're going to talk just a little bit about God's wrath this morning. Now, I want, I want to be clear. I'm not the guy that is just up here like, ah, oh, turn and burn, doom and gloom, that's not where the heartbeat of this message comes from. But I think it's important for us to understand if we're going to build upon this and have a really firm understanding of what salvation actually is. You see, God's justice and his loving mercy are not at odds with one another. I think a lot of the times we have this, that this vision that either God is loving and he's kind and he's merciful or he's angry and he's wrathful and he's the God that's coming back to bring justice upon the earth. And the reality is he doesn't have like a switch that he turns on his loving side and then he turns it off and he brings on his like uh, scary side, right? <laughs> um, some of us are kind of like that. I know my kids can be like, oh, I love you, daddy. And then they break something and then just, I don't, I don't do that to my kids. I don't know why I'm saying that, but... Um, <laughs> Our God is a perfectly good father. 
and he's perfectly good in all of his ways. And I would say this, that his loving, compassionate heart that is full of mercy, that's full of grace, that we have to experience, that, that is of utmost importance that we encounter, upholds the fact that he is just, that he is righteous, that he is holy, and he doesn't let evil go unpunished. But in the same vein, it's the fact that he is just. It's the fact that he, he doesn't let evil go, unpush, go unpunished. <laughs> that he doesn't let it just slide by. That certifies the fact that he's loving. That really gives proof and evidence to the fact that he's good and that he's loving. They work in perfect tandem with each other. And I think this can be demonstrated in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. I want to give you this verse of scripture where it says that therefore the Lord will wait, that he may be gracious to you. God wants to extend grace to you. And therefore he's going to be exalted that he may have mercy on you. He wants to demonstrate mercy. But again, we see here in the next verse, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait on him. In this one verse of scripture, we see the gracious and merciful aspect of the character of God married perfectly with the fact that he is a God of justice. For, for, for example here, when we talk about the justice of God, let's take a guy nobody likes, um, like, like Hitler, right? Nobody in here is like, ooh, yeah, I like that guy. Uh, if you are, let's talk. We will work through some things. We believe that Jesus can heal you. Um, but universally, like throughout the majority of history, um, you know, I've never met somebody that was just like, you know what, Hitler wasn't such a bad guy. You know, he, he's pretty gnarly, pretty bad guy, did atrocious things. Imagine him coming before a judge and, you know, we're reading off his long list of crimes, long list of deeds that just, you know, it takes days. And uh, it's pretty universally accepted that, man, there's got to be a punishment. There's got to be a consequence for this guy. But the judge, he's like, hmm, I think you've learned your lesson. Uh, you know, that was pretty bad, but, man, you know, I, I, think, I think I should probably give you a free pass here. And he walks out of the courtroom with, with no... No justice, right? That would infuriate us, would it not? That, that would, that, that would, it should. <laughs> because when there is injustice, when there is evil, uh, we believe that there should be a response to that, right? How many of you guys would look at a child molester and say, you know what? That guy just had a bad rap, let's let him go. You know, he, everybody deserves a second, third, fourth, fifth shot. No, our hearts cry out, God, there's got to be justice for evil in this world. And I, I want to take that to an even grander scale when we think about God and how he views our sin and what's wrong with the world. It was something that mankind, atrocities exist against God, against the creator. And him in justice says, I cannot allow that to go unpunished. But in equal parts, in his mercy, in his compassion, and in his love, he said, but I'm going to make a way out. 
Not only, not only do I love these people so much, not only do I care about them so much, I'm going to send myself and take upon that same wrath and that same punishment and that same justice that was due for them. He says, I see this and I can't let this go without action because I said that I would respond. I said that I would bring justice. And right now the scales aren't balanced. Right now there isn't there isn't justice, and he sees the sin of humanity, and he sends himself to step in the place and take it upon himself. I want to be very clear. Romans, uh, throughout the entirety of the book, says that none of us are without sin. None of us are inherently perfect. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, deserving of wrath deserving of the fact that he said that he was going to bring justice. And that sounds angry, that sounds terrible, that sounds like, God, isn't that a little harsh? But one of the dangers that we have is looking at the perfect God, the creator of the entire world, the one that breathed life into your bones, and we try to look at him through the lens of our kind of frail humanity and tell him what is right and wrong. A lot of the times we, we have this kind of False, percep false perception of uh, what's fair. But I want, to, I want to tell you, it is not man's place to tell God what is fair and what is not. What happens is we usurp God then and we sit ourselves upon the throne and we start making decisions on what is right and what is wrong and that's not for us to decide. That's harsh that's, that doesn't necessarily sit well. And if that offends your flesh this morning, I want to encourage you, stay with me through this. Stay with me through this through the next couple of weeks because we're going to flesh this out in its entirety on what this, look like, what this looks like and what this means. But I believe because God alone is good, we are able to trust that he is perfect in his judgments and equally loving in his mercy. I want to read Romans chapter 5 to you. This is going to kind of be a crux text for us as we look at this throughout the next couple of weeks because salvation, there is more to it than just us going to heaven maybe when we die. There is more to it than us just not going to hell. There is a purpose, there is a reason why Jesus came. And there was something that he desired in man. There was something that he desired in you and that was fellowship with him that pushed him to pay the ultimate price. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's you, that's me, that's everyone in the entirety of the world. We were helpless and we were ungodly. And it says that Christ died for us. It goes on, for one will hardly die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for the good person someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. He doesn't just tell us he loves us. That's not enough for him. He demonstrates it in the most intense way possible by giving his own son. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? It doesn't say saved from hell. 
It doesn't say saved from sin. It doesn't say saved from, you know, just this life and the troubles and the cares and the monotony. It's not just being saved from yourself. This here, God willingly points his finger back on himself, saying that we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus. This is not me trying to paint God in a bad light. He's not afraid of that because he's the one that said this. I want you to be clear. I want to be clear here. But this is pivotal and this is foundational for us to have a healthy understanding of what salvation actually looks like. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Friends, this is good news. We were once enemies of God, but it so broke his heart that we were separated from him. And he knew because he's just and he's righteous that sin cannot go unchecked. It cannot go unpunished because he made a promise upon himself that he would. That evil would be judged. That evil would be dealt with. This, is, this should be encouraging for you when you ask God, if you're so good, why is there so much pain? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much evil that's happening? It's not lost on God. God is not just kind of, kind of turning a blind eye to the injustice of this world. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe, maybe you've been the victim of such cruelty. Maybe you've been the victim of such tragedy. God is not looking at that just with a blind eye, giving everything a free pass. It is going to come to judgment one day. Evil will come under the fierce judgment of God. And that should be terrifying for those of us that have not embraced this ministry of reconciliation because God has made a way. Man, I know you think, well, Pastor Nate, you're just this doom and gloom hard preacher today. This isn't true because what he saved us from, he's also saved us into. It's not just what he saved us from, but it's what he saved us into. A wonderful, beautiful, reconciled life with Jesus, with God. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.